strange things are afoot at the Circle K. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Deadhead Cannabis Show. I'm Larry Mishkin from Michigan Law in Chicago, joined as always by Rob Hunt of Lene Holdings in San Diego, and our always present and able producer, Dan Humiston, coming to you today live from the Avon, Colorado County Library. And uh, we're going to try and not disturb the people over there, but apparently Dan's already crossed that line, so we'll see. Uh, but we got a great show today. We've got an excellent, excellent Grateful Dead show that we're going to be talking about and playing some tunes from. Uh, we've got some real groundbreaking news in the cannabis world uh, that's uh, going to be very exciting to talk about. Um, so let's dive right in. Our show for today is from October 26th, 1989 at the Miami Arena in, of course, Miami, Florida. And uh, this is in the month of October of 89 when the boys were hearkening uh, back and playing some, uh, some late 60s gems. And this night is no different, uh, but it's just a really solid night all the way around. And Dan, why don't you hit with the opening tune and the surprises begin. So, Rob, I'll tell you, Foolish Heart, you and I were just talking about a few minutes ago, a great tune, an, an underappreciated tune from that time period. But what I really love about it in this show is that Jerry's pulling it out as the opener. And you can even hear a little bit of the crowd appreciation, you know, something off the beaten path, uh, stirring things up a little bit. And uh, it's a great Foolish Heart. Yeah, I love Foolish Heart. It's uh, always been one of my favorite tunes. And again, as we said earlier, it's a little bit unheralded. Everyone talks about, you know, kind of late... 80s tunes, everyone talks about the Garcia ballads that were introduced, you know, late in the, uh, in, in the Dead's career, whether it was So Many Roads or, um, or Days Between or even Standing on the Moon. But, you know, from that same period, uh, for an up-tempo, you know, kind of uh, second set opener that would be an alternative, let's say, like a Scarlet or a China Cat, you know, Foolish was right there. And Foolish was an opener that uh, I always looked forward to, to hearing. So, you know, the fact that, like, Dead & Co. haven't really picked it up and it really wasn't played much even with, um, with the other iterations of Further or the other ones, kind of a song that, that disappeared from, you know, the Grateful Dead uh, catalog. I don't even hear too many cover bands covering it. And I don't understand why, because I, I think Foolish is just such a, um, such a great song. And I think for Garcia, you know, with the MIDI action that he was trying out in 89, Foolish was just a great uh, avenue for that as well. So, yeah, really cool to see as an opener, and uh, just really cool to actually, you know, have a show that we can actually talk about having a foolish in it. Cause, like, I saw tons of them. I loved it, and, uh, and I miss that tune a lot. Yeah, as do I, and you're right. It, it didn't really get a lot of attention. I mean, the Bobby can't play Days Between enough, and uh, he, he dabbles into the other Jerry ballads from time to time, but uh, 
This one's never made it. Haven't heard a lot of Built to Last either. And I like Built to Last, but I think that uh, after the ones you mentioned, uh, some of those ballads are just absolutely incredible. Uh, so many roads and um, standing on the moon. But Foolish Heart was fun. It's a little more up-tempo, a little more upbeat. And, uh, you know, Jerry always really seemed uh, to get into it. Had fun lyrics and everything. Signed the Mona Lisa with a spray can, call it art. That's good stuff, you know. That's 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 um, Hunter clicking on all cylinders there. And yeah, it, it's a great way to open a show. And I don't ever recall it seeing opening a show with it. And that's really a lot of fun. And, and clearly the crowd's having a good time. And this is just a great time for them. And I know uh, we've talked about it before, where they were, what they were doing in October of 89. And uh, we'll be getting into uh, some of those tunes a little bit later on in the show. But uh, I know you've got a lot to bring to the table on that, having caught the beginning of all this madness at Hampton uh, at the beginning of the month. Well, I wasn't at Hampton the beginning of the month. I was at, I was at Brandenburg. Yeah, again, the, the Hampton shows I saw were a couple years later. They're also billed as, you know, sort of formerly the Warlocks as well, but they didn't get the same fanfare because they didn't break anything out in, uh, in spring of 92 that they did in the fall of 89. I actually wanted to go back and touch the something you just said, you know, which is that, you know, Built to Last is another great one to talk about. We don't really talk about that one too much, but the big difference between like a Built to Last and the Foolish is, is they put Built to Last away. They stopped playing it. I think three twenty six ninety in Albany was the last time they played that tune. So, and that was I uh, think Built to Last victim China Rider to open the second set from that night. After that, it was you know Built to Last was gone. I don't know whether or not the lyrics are just too hard for Garcia to remember because there was just very very tricky. Those first verse, second verse, third verse, fourth verse, and then the last verse basically tied all the previous verses together as far as what the the stars on the hill were doing. It was definitely a, a tough one to get right, but Foolish stayed all the way in through the end. You know, all the way until I think the last couple shows they they played a Foolish Nick within the last three shows the dead the dead played in '95. So you know, from that standpoint, uh, the longevity was was certainly there, and it was you know pretty much straightforward from when they first you know released it. Whereas uh, whereas other songs you know they're they're dabbling in and out of you know like another like ballad that I would point to from that period as well that they put away was um, Believe It or Not. You know that was there for a while and then and then shelved. Foolish state and the uh, the lyrics. I agree. I think were some of like Hunter's best, especially for late era lyrics. Not just the uh, the one you you quoted, but you go through every single verse. And there's something quotable from that song. Right. No, it is, and and it you know it was nice to see that that they were still uh, generating tunes at the end that were as vibrant and well received by the Deadheads as, as songs that were 20 years or 30 years old at that point, and uh, they're in great form. And and you know, '89 I think is a uh, a pivotal period for Garcia when he was uh, you know he had he had made his full comeback from the stroke. Uh, I don't think he had quite had the second stroke yet, and uh, he was. Uh, they were they were really sailing and, and and playing some great shows. And I think you know you can really tell uh, when Jerry's feeling it, when he's feeling good, when he's he's ready to go. Uh, that seems like those are the times when he allows the band, if you will, to dip into some of this stuff, some of some of the older tunes and and things like that. And uh, you know you can just tell from that foolish heart and the way he jumps right into it. He's having a good time, and. Why shouldn't he be? They're just clicking on all cylinders, I think. Yeah, it was such a recognizable thing when they started it up. Just the because uh, it was such an easy Garcia strum. It was just like dan 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 dan. It was almost like the the way Franklin starts off, where it's just that really really sort of casual, like you know, moving into it before uh, before the rest of the band would kind of join in. But you'd always hear Garcia sort of do the opening strums on that tune, uh, and you know. There's certain songs you're like, ah, that's a foolish, where you just kind of get excited about the uh, the opening before it even really is fully started. Absolutely. Very, very identifiable and uh, always fun to hear. But I'm having fun with this show, so let's uh, let's move on to our second clip here before we dive over uh, 
onto the marijuana side and, and discuss some of the things that are going over there. Uh, this is the second set opener, and uh, I really love this too because uh, you just don't hear an estimated profit. At least I never heard it very much opening up a set, but I'll, I'll tell you, Robin, and certainly our, our friends at home, listen to Bobby on his enunciations of California. It's great stuff. So long I felt this way, I didn't know her no. Rainbows in down that highway where ocean breezes blow. My tongue coming, the voices say, and they tell me where I go. Don't worry about it. Nah, nah, don't worry about it. No, I ain't even know her there. Nah, nah, cause I know where to go California Preaching on the burning shore California Knock, knocking on the golden door Like an angel Standing in a shaft of light Rising up to paradise You know I'm gonna shine California. That's just Bobby keeping it fresh. Yeah, there's definitely some heavy yas in there, but uh, I'm still waiting for the, the librarian to, to come over and bounce Dan out to California uh, by, by playing the music in the library. <laughs> so any second now, <laughs> any second now, I'm waiting for him to come over and be like, okay, you're all done. Yeah, well, you know, she's a deadhead too, maybe. So, you know, even even librarians like the Grateful Dead a little bit, as long as you're not disturbing the readers. And I think that's going to be our selling point when the library comes over to ban- bounce Dan out. We'll say, hey, come on, you know, it's, it's the Grateful Dead. See if, uh, see if she buys it. I absolutely agree. I think, well, you never know, right? Dan, it all depends how you deliver it. Good luck. Keep us posted. Es- Estimated Profit, what a great song, though. It, you know, so many times in, in my career, it came immediately on the heels of a China Rider, um, you know, maybe sometimes on the heels of a Scarlet Fire, pretty much always leading into an Eyes of the World. And on any given night, what a great four-song set to start the second set to really get a show, to really get that second set up and running. And you know, it was, Bobby loves it. I think it's one of his better tunes, certainly one of his favorite songs that he sings uh, that I enjoy listening to. And, you know, the band always liked it. You know, Jerry always jams on it really well. The drummers are into it. And, you know, Bobby has a lot of fun with it like he does here. And it's a great song. Um, great one from the uh, Terrapin Station album, I believe. It's one of three songs, too, that Bobby gets to preen on as far as, like, coming up to the front of the stage and doing his high kicks and his jams between, I think it was Estimated, Throwing Stones, and, um, and Sugar Mags would be the three you could almost always expect Bobby to, uh, to come front and center on, especially with, you know, an estimate doing the ha, 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 you know, so it's, uh, it's definitely a fun one. The thing, the thing I love about this one, as you said, it's a second set opener, which is really rare. It didn't get followed by an eyes. It got followed by a blow away. Uh, and then went to, uh, the 26 minute dark star we're going to talk about. So when you talk about like a, a, a sort of random way to, to play a set, estimated blow away is, uh, I, I can't think of another one out there where they opened up with, uh, with that combo. No, I think you're right. I, I don't think of it either. Um, and you know, another preener that I would put in there is Saturday night. Uh, he's always up on the front of the stage hooting and hollering when he plays that one, but absolutely fits right in there with all of that. So yeah, it, it's it's great to hear. It's a lot of fun. Bobby's having a good time that night, and why shouldn't he? Everybody's uh, everybody's doing their thing. So 
We've got some really interesting marijuana news going on in the world. You know, a lot of times on this show, uh, some of the news that we bring isn't so great. And in fact, a couple of stories that we're going to talk about today in a few minutes don't exactly bring a smile to your face, but they're important to talk about because they let us all know where things are going in the cannabis industry and gives us a chance to kind of look and be a little reflective on, on how things are going so far. But Rob, this first story, man, uh, this is really big. What can you tell us about it with GTI and their, their new big deal? Bill, what? strange things are afoot at the Circle K. Yeah, I think Bill and Ted said it best right there. GTI made a big announcement with Circle K uh, yesterday that they're going to start opening up uh, satellite stores inside Circle K's in Florida, uh, which will open up their customer base to so many more people. Uh, the way they've designed this, from what I've read, is that they'll have a separate entrance going into each one of the uh, Circle K's they partner up with. Uh, so it'll still meet all the requirements of, of being sort of bifurcated away and we'll still have a separate register or separate everything else. But that means that any gas station you go to with the Circle K, they're rolling out a lot of these and it's a big deal. It's going to, it's going to allow them to immediately start catching up in market share to, um, a lot of their competitors and truly been in particular, but that's not the important part about this announcement. The important part about this announcement is the normalization of cannabis in one of the largest markets. I mean, this is the first time that you've seen a major retailer in Circle K. You know, it's a Canadian company or a Canadian-owned company, but it's you know, it, it's a massive U.S. retailer. And if they're willing to do this in Florida, the question is where else they're willing to do it. And the question is, you know, from a zoning perspective, you know, can this be done in other in other places? There are many sort of restrictions that Florida is more permissive than than not. But no matter how you look at it, the fact that you've got Circle K saying we're willing to to step in and partner. Um, with GTI, without fear of what the feds are going to do, without fear of you know anything else reputationally, this is I, I would go so far to say this is the biggest announcement I've seen in cannabis in this calendar year. It's huge. Now, the one thing is, I when I read the story, I thought that I saw that it's going to be limited for now, at least to medical marijuana. Um, but regardless, it's it's a, it's a huge thing uh, for the reason that you say, which is uh, one of the big issues we harp about on this show all the time is how here we are 10 years into adult use in this country and 15 or 20 years into medical marijuana use in this country. And so many times, you know, people who smoke marijuana still feel like they have to defend themselves, still have to feel like it's okay for me to do this, even though you're going into some standalone entity somewhere that may, depending on what city you're in, may or may not be in the heart of the business district. And, uh, you know, with packaging that has to stay wrapped and come home and, you know, that, that makes it hard, I think, for people to embrace. But if Circle K is ubiquitous enough that we have it in Bill and Ted's, then for God's sakes, you know, the fact that GTI can pull a deal with them. I mean, we're, we're, we're putting it in Florida everywhere. There's no place you can go in Florida where you don't drive past a Circle K. And uh, people in Florida go to their Circle Ks. And if all of a sudden they see the Circle K is selling marijuana, I think that that does help normalize it. And I think that does help move the ball forward. And if we're really lucky, we'll get other standard retailers on board who want to join the game too. That's exactly right. You know, it's once one retailer like that's taken the plunge, and the question is which other ones will follow suit. And, you know, and again, Circle K already did this in Canada, and in Canada it's not that big a deal because, you know, federal legalizations uh, already happened up there. So they did it with um, the second largest retailer in Canada called Fire and Flower. At this point, you have other uh, retail chains, you know, does 7-Eleven hop in, do other bodegas hop in, uh, does um, AMPM, which is huge in California, which is, you know, owned by Atlantic Richfield Company or ARCO. Um, 
there's a handful of groups out there that could say, okay, we're next. If, if no one's going to um, uh, stop Circle K from doing this, then why shouldn't we get in the game? Like, oftentimes it's a game of chicken and who goes first. You know, I, I think we've now had Circle K guinea pig this idea, and we'll see whether or not the feds come back in to stop. And if they don't, then does that give you know, banks more um, willingness to, to work with chemicals? I mean, look, are, are Circle K's banks now going to shut down Circle K? That, that's my question. You know, are, are they going to come after them for you know potential um, uh, AML KYC um, you know rules or uh, aiding and abetting? I mean, if they're not, this should open the floodgates to to everyone that's sort of been tepid, going, well, let's see if someone else moves first. Well, guess what? Circle K just moved, and uh, the game is completely different from this moment forward. Hundred percent, and and I'll take it a step further than that. I don't think that you will get an argument from anybody in the world that. Florida under Ron DeSantis has become a decidedly very, very red state with a very, very conservative bent that, that seeps all the way down into school board uh, planning and, 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 you know, the don't say gay laws and all the stuff they have down there. And yet this state uh, is going to be the state that's going to kind of allow this experiment to launch uh, that could really take things all over. So I, I, I like to think of this as the best argument we could come up with to, to prove the point that cannabis is not a political issue. Cannabis is not a bipartisan issue. This is the right doing it. We already know the left likes to do it. Uh, we, have, we have something here, and, and, and hopefully this will allow those guys and women serving in the U.S. Senate to kind of put other issues aside and say, this is huge. If Florida can do it, why aren't we cashing in on this with every state, right? It, it's, it's, it's time to start doing it. So I, I applaud Florida for, for being willing to do it. I applaud Circle K for taking the lead. Yeah, look, I can't wait until um, Circle K drops one huge canvas store right in the middle of the villages. And you've got, you know, average age, 75, 80 years old, wheeling up in their uh, golf carts, you know, going in there, getting their pre-rolls, going in there, getting their, uh, their edibles. I'm looking forward to, to Dan Humiston's mom buying just big, big bags of weed out of the village of Circle K. And I don't think we're that far off from that. You know, so we've got to change some hearts and minds, but, uh, but we're 90% of the way there. I mean, once we've normalized this, the golf cart crowd follows. I'm certain of it. Well, does that mean we have to have all new laws in terms of operating a golf cart, uh, you know, when you're, uh, when you're a little bit inebriated on your cannabis? And absolutely not. The whole point of a golf cart is to be absolutely hammered. It doesn't matter, you know, what the, uh, the, the substance is. The whole idea of not having like you know an ignition or having like a, you know be on the highways. If you're driving a golf cart, I don't care how tricked out it is. I don't care if it's you know like got a gas um, uh, engine to it. I don't even care if you're driving around locally in your streets. I, I'm pretty sure. And again, don't quote me on this. This is not legal advice or any other advice. But I'm pretty sure you can drive around as fucked up as you want to be on the golf cart. <laughs> Why not? I you know, I, I, I have to agree with that. I, although I, I spent some time on Coronado Island uh, this past February with my wife's cousin and her husband, and, and they have a golf cart. And we were going everywhere. They were not inebriated, but we were having a good time zipping around at night. And you know, the bigger concern was with the cars around us inebriated. But uh, yeah, in these communities, man, that's the way to go. And, you know, when, once you can start uh, stocking up in your golf cart, there's no stopping it. And hey, I, again, I, you know, the villages may take a, a more pro-Trump stance sometimes politically, a little more right-wing, but I have no doubt that they love, they love their marijuana down there. I mean, look, I'll, I'll go case in point on this and we'll move on, but every golf course I've ever played also has a bar car that pulls around to make sure that you've got drinks on the golf course, and they all sell booze. So if it's not, you know, okay to, to drink in golf cart, 
then there's something fundamentally wrong with the game of golf uh, to begin with. So, you know, if we're moving that and migrating that to adult communities and seniors communities, I'm pretty sure that still follows that, um, that you know, using whatever sort of substances you want, whether it's, you know, cannabis or whether it's, um, you know, benzodiazepines, like, you know, some like Valiums or things like that. I think they're probably all, you know, not just um, accepted, but, you know, encouraged uh, for, for golf cart driving. I, I have to believe so. Uh, too bad our audience can't see Dan Humiston down in the library in Avon, Colorado, shaking his head. He, he may not be quite agreeing with all this, but, you know, that's because he loves his mother and we got to be careful what we say about all those people. There are certainly exceptions along the way, and I'm sure that the lovely Mrs. Humiston is one of them. But, yeah, this is, uh, this is huge, you know, and I'm sure it's no surprise to you, Rob, that this is GTI and Ben Kovler kind of leading the charge on this. You know, those guys... Uh, are certainly one of the the big original Chicago MSOs that 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 really cashed in at the beginning and have just been successful in a way that you know, I think few people thought would be possible this quickly and this early on. And I think it's it's moves like this that are you know a little bold and daring and a little out there that justifies their place in terms of where they are right now in the cannabis hierarchy. Yeah, no, it uh, it certainly cements their reputation as being um, leaders in trying new things and taking chances. I mean, again. As bold as it was for Circle K, it's equally as bold for a canvas company to try to ink this deal, knowing uh, how much attention and fanfare and press it's going to get and knowing how much scrutiny it's going to be under. So uh, this is something that I would expect their legal team spent a great deal of time going through this saying, are you guys sure this is the direction you want to go? But ultimately, if they came out as a yes on this, they had to have gotten guidance from some pretty top-notch attorneys that said, uh, you know, go ahead, we, we, think, we think we've got this and we think we can defend it. Absolutely right. Uh, you know they're too big to just do things by the seat of their pants. Uh, they got a great team over there, and I'm sure they they took their time uh, looking into this. And you know now the rest of us uh, will have the uh, the unique opportunity to kind of sit back and, and see how it goes. And you know for any of us that have any excuse to get down to Florida anytime soon, we can be you know firsthand experimenters and uh, report back to everybody else. But it seems uh, it seems like it's going to be amazing, and, and I suppose it'll change everyone's perception of driving along the uh, Florida Turnpike if uh, every 25 or 30 miles you can whip off at a Circle K and you know take care of things so let's see what happens yeah for sure and I gotta say I, I'm curious to know what Dan Humiston's uh, Thanksgiving dinner is gonna be like with his mother when she's like I'm not sure I like that deadhead cannabis show you're a part of Dan and, it, and he's like mom mom I swear I'm just a producer what they say on that show has nothing to do with me I don't support any of that stuff I, I, I just record it but you know, I, I would like to hope that, that the senior Miss Humiston uh, does listen to our show. And we are tongue-in-cheek, just kidding about all this. But, uh, you know, I would love to see the villages have a Circle K with weed. That, 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 to me, would be fun. Yes. <laughs> that, that would be great. And uh, we'll, we'll put that on our list of things that we'd like to do one of these days if we're really lucky. Now, let's kind of cut in the other direction for a minute here. And, and I don't know that, that either one of these stories are necessarily bad news as much as they just reflect, you know, changes in the economy and the industry right now, Rob. But I just saw an article from our good friends, MJ Biz, that Leafly, uh, who was one of the really early players in this industry uh, in terms of having their online uh, access to tell you just about any strain in the world and where you could buy it and things like that. They're cutting out 56 jobs which is significant. I don't know how many total employees they have. But the other thing that caught me is the article says it's going to save them approximately $16 million. I don't know where all that money's coming from. But boy, if, that, if that's what they're saving in salaries, I wish I would have had a job at Leafly up till now. Those guys are getting pretty good coin. 
Yeah, no, you and I did the, the same exact thing. We looked at that and did the division and said, wait, that's like $285,000 an employee. Uh, seems to be doing pretty well over there. Now, I've got to think there's other you know, external things, whether that's you know, uh, health benefits and that's you know, payroll tax and all the rest of that stuff. But even so, if you reduce it down, you know, that still means that those Leafly employees are probably making north of $160,000, $170,000 a year. So that's, you know, that's not an insignificant amount of money. What I will say is that Leafly is a pretty big organization right now. So you know, losing 56 people, I don't think is a, uh, is a massive hit to those guys. I mean, they're, they're primarily a um, digital platform. So, you know, it doesn't require that many people to run that place. It's not like they've got, you know, tons of uh, retail stores with, you know, different shifts. But they've grown to be a, a pretty darn big organization. So do I think this is like a, a major announcement that the, the company's in trouble, that we're seeing a massive downturn? Perhaps only the need for content creation, but not necessarily the need for, you know, the, the company staying solvent and healthy. It, it's not a, an expensive business to run by comparison to, you know, a brick-and-mortar store. Well... The brick-and-mortar store takes us right into our next story because uh, it looks like Canopy Growth, who's always been one of the larger players in the industry, is is basically shutting down their retail business in all of Canada. You know, we've, we've talked oftentimes about the Canadian market and, and its ups and its downs and, and all of that, but I can't help but take note that, you know, rarely will a, a, a group that has so much interest in, in an industry like this walk away from retail if they're making money at it. So... Uh, I'm just curious as to what your take on it is. Well, I mean, this one, uh, like just from a very academic level, makes a, a great deal of sense because, how do I say this? Um, their stores sucked, right? So it, it's, there's no surprise here, Larry. Uh, you know, what they've been doing up in Canada for a long time, no one wants to shop at the campy stores. They, um, they've had a reputation for, for being subpar for a long time. Right now, those guys are doing whatever they can to cut costs on every possible level. And a lot of that was based on um, mistakes they'd made in the past. And I think Tweed was their brand in retail. I don't know anyone in Canada that tells me they shop at Tweed. You know, we should talk to our buddy Dave Ellison at shout out to Scarlet Fire Cannabis. Um, he'll be the first to tell you that a lot of people are staying away from the large retail chains and they're really trying to support the, uh, the smaller operations that just shop to get much better quality product. Whereas, you know, Tweed was just pumping like the Tokyo Smoke brand and, and pumping other canopy brands. Those, those brands don't resonate with the uh, consumer the way whatever Dave Ellison is putting on his shelves do. So I, I didn't find this one surprising at all. I mean, the campy stores were, if you're talking retail in Canada, you're talking Fire and Flower, you're talking um, High Tide. Those are the guys that are, are really getting stuff done for the larger chains of retail. And then it's a lot of smaller operators that are really trying to you know, take a dominant position the way like a microbrew or a brewery would in a local town. Uh, and that's what the consumers are going after. Tweed was never, never interesting. Well, this is always good to know, and that uh, that does help put it in some context. Look, I'm any, I'm sorry. Anytime any business in the, in the industry can't survive, uh, you know, different companies for different reasons, and probably some I'm not as sorry about as others. You know, but you know they'll keep doing whatever they do best, and uh, if, you know, dropping the retail side of things helps them stay in business and they contribute positively to the industry. Then it's all good. And I'm glad you mentioned Dave Ellison's name. Uh, it's always good to give Dave a shout out. And another quick Dave Ellison note, he's going to be coming into Chicago in December to catch some JRAD shows that they uh, rescheduled when the Sacred Rose performance was canceled uh, due to bad weather that never materialized, not canceled by them, but uh, they're nice enough to come back and uh, and play some more for us. And Dave's going to come in town for that. So I'm hopeful that I'll have a chance to visit with him. And Rob and Dan, 
bring the whole band back together, guys. Anybody who wants to come to Chicago and see J Rad at the Riviera for three nights, it's a great place to go. Wouldn't want to miss it. But uh, that'll be fun, and uh, maybe we'll have Dave on after that, and we can all talk about our experience and uh, and see what's going on. Let's uh, let's swing back to the dead for a minute, I think. And uh, our next song up is this Dark Star uh, that you alluded to a minute ago, Rob. Let's go ahead and play what we've got because uh, I think the part that we're playing will, will help uh, make up part of the conversation we're going to be having in a second. Dan, whenever you're ready, as long as the librarian's out of earshot. Okay, so what's significant about that? Well, for those of us that were seeing dead shows in the um, mid to late 80s and then uh, into the 90s, there were more than one occasion where I'd be there and we'd hear those introductory notes to Dark Star. Everybody gets really, really excited. They jam, they jam, they jam, they jam, they jam, they jam, and then they go into the other one. Not that I don't appreciate a good Dark Star jam, but you don't really know what you're getting until Jerry starts singing. And even if he gives you the first verse, you may not get the second verse. Our set lists always had Dark Star, verse one, or if I would say verse one and verse two, this is a full Dark Star, man. This is 26 minutes, start to finish. You get both verses, you get everything. It, it, it's just such a great example of Dark Star uh, played this late in uh, in their career. And Rob, I know you have some thoughts on how it compares to uh, some of the other Dark Stars that they were playing in October of 1989. Yeah, I mean, look, this is probably the third major one, right? You know, you had the, the thing was 10-8 or 10-9. I want to say it was 10-9, uh, 89 in Hampton. Then you had the 10-16 on Bob's birthday from uh, from Brendan Byrne, which we covered last week. This was the third big one. And this is the first time where I think they were sort of getting back into the groove. You know, the first time there was so much fanfare, the place went absolutely nuts, just getting Dark Star back for the first time since, you know, 78, I think. And then, you know, you had the next one, which was uh, a second set opener, which again was, you know, anytime you're in like the New York metro area, anything that's like a big thing is, is just extra loud and extra exciting because it's New York. But this one was, you know, a little mellow. It was a little less well-attended. You know, Miami's not a hotbed of, uh, of Grateful Dead fandom. It's certainly not like the way like a California show is or a New York show is. But they just crushed it. They came out with, I mean, this, this isn't like an insignificant dark star. To your point, it's a 26 minute dark star. So they, they came into this thing, they stayed in it, uh, they played both verses, they played all the way into drums. You know, that, the three song portion before drums, it wasn't you know, five or six songs the way it can be sometimes. It was literally just estimated blow away into a 26 minute dark star. If you were to say, you know, which dark star is, is, is the one from Fall of 89? 
Yeah, I put my money on this one every time, even though it doesn't get the same like hype. It wasn't like nearly as exciting. It didn't get collected as much, but purely like musically, which Dark Star do I think was the one that represents Fall of '89 the best? I I think Miami does for sure. It's it's sick. It's sick all the way through. It is, and and you know, uh, when I was pulling it down off of uh, archive.org, I was reading some of the comments, and it was fascinating because for every three or four people that would sit there and just talk about what an amazing dark star that was. They had a few others who were, who were referring to it as a dark, dark star. Um, and in the middle of it, it does get a little funky and they get a little bit out there, but that's just to me, that's what they did in 1969. They got out there, they got funky with it. And sometimes it could be a little darker than others, but that's part of the ride with them. And uh, it was interesting to see that there were a few fans that said it, it, it affected them enough that they actually got up and walked out. And I was thinking, boy, that makes it a dark star. I really would have loved to have seen. And um, sorry that I missed the opportunity. But uh, yeah, it, it, it's great. It's a great tune for them to play. It's all part of this period of time when they are looking back at those uh, 1960, early 1970 periods. And what a treat for deadheads at this point. You know, if you're in, if you're on the East Coast and it's October of uh, of 1989 and a dead show comes to your town and you don't go out and see it, you're playing with fire because at this rate, you're bound to miss something huge. Uh, I note that, uh, you know, we don't have an addicts here like we, uh, like you got it or they got it um, at Hampton. And also, I think there was an addicts on Bob's birthday night, uh, 1016 at Brendan Byrne. Um, and I think Bob uh, Bob's birthday night, uh, one of those nights also had a death don't have no mercy. Um, but uh, Hampton, I know, did. Um, but, you know, here, even a dark star. And then you'll see when we when we get to the encore in a few minutes on the way out of this show. This is just great fun for the Grateful Dead. They, Jerry's voice isn't quite as sharp as we'd like it to be, but you know we all live and die with Jerry with uh, a good voice sometimes and a scratchy voice others, and I kind of like it either way. And this is great. It's a lot of fun to listen to and uh, envious of the people who saw all those dark stars because I was not out on the East Coast in October of 1989. Yeah, and I didn't even get any. I mean, I was... Seeing shows then, I didn't get any of the Dark Stars. I missed all of them. I got the, uh, a couple of the other breakouts that happened, but I didn't get my first Dark Star until the spring of 1990. So, uh, so I still had to wait a little bit longer after that, but you know, I certainly was uh, getting the vibe from everyone that was lucky enough to have seen a couple of those uh, definitely friends in school that were coming back like, dude, especially after the 10-16-89, like, you know, like a third of the people I knew that were deadheads in my high school came back just absolutely floored from that night. You know, I... I I look back in the fall of 89 and think that this entire tour was uh, was about as well as the Grateful Dead played. And again, it gets overshadowed a little bit by spring of 1990, where you know most of that and that was, uh, was recorded. You know, As amazing as spring 90 was, fall of 89, especially as I said, because I love some of the, uh, the experimentation that Garcia was doing on MIDI at the time, it is just such, a, um, such an amazing period. And it's also like they brought so much stuff back out from you know, the end of summer of 89, I think, you know, from Alpine forward, call it. There was just so many things they were bringing back out that were, you know, songs that no one thought they were going to hear again, uh, which I think really, like, revitalized um, a lot of, like, the excitement about going to see shows for a lot of people. They're like, yeah, they're not doing anything new these days. Well, they might not do, be doing anything new, but they're certainly doing, you know, new things that were old, which is, uh, which is pretty darn cool back then. Yeah, it really was. Um, this is just this is a lot of fun to listen to. We've got another tune that I think, uh, as long as we're on a good musical roll here, uh, we can get Dan to throw on for us right here. And and this is just uh, when we were going to shows. I'm, I'm sure you guys were the same way. Uh, it's a nerd thing to do, but you know, at the beginning of the night, we'd always sit down with each other and say, "Okay, what are they going to open with? What are they going to open the second set with?" 
Um, what are they going to play into drums? What are they going to play out of space? What are they going to close with? And the tune we're going to hear in this next clip uh, was frequently played out of space. Uh, but this is one of those good spaces where Jerry gives us all a great big heads up before he ever gets there, what we're going to hear just to make sure everybody stays put. Dan? Was always one of my favorite tunes was one of those songs I heard many times before I completely understood that that was the wheel and one day one of my roommates uh, set me straight on it and loved it ever since but I it, it's such a distinctive opening and it's kind of an easy tune to guess out of space when Jerry teases it unless he's just teasing it and decides to go into something else but you know it, it's bass I think oftentimes kind of got the well yeah space is fine considering talk to my buddies that's a great time to go run to the bathroom run to get a drink run to do something else and that's true. Um, you know, space can go a lot of different ways, but a lot of times space is really cool. And when you're sitting there listening to it and you're in the right frame of mind and Jerry's kind of sending out signals as to where he's going to go and, you know, you can pick that note out right away and just follow him right into the beginning of the tune. And and I don't know about you, Rob, but the wheel is as good, of any, as, good as any tune they could play coming out of space for me. Yeah, I mean, it's one of my two favorites. Obviously, the other one is the other one. Uh, but the wheel and the other one were the two that you're kind of always, always hoping for and if you were high enough, everything always sounded like it was coming either the wheel or the other one uh, coming out of space. And there's a bunch of other songs as well. They come out like I Need a Miracle being another sort of prominent one that they'd uh, pop out with. But with, with the wheel, yeah, I know that feeling of when you're like kind of midway through space and you're kind of like, you know, getting into a zone of like, you know, what's coming next. And sometimes it gets dark and sometimes it's, you know, like just interesting and cool, like just different sounds. I always love that moment when the drummers would come back out on stage. You're like, okay, space is about to wrap up. Now we can actually really try to figure out what, what they're coming out with. And the, the fade into the wheel was always one of my best, kind of like would just melt into the wheel. So the wheel is such a slow beginning. Even on the Garcia Garcia album, when I think Wheel was, uh, was first released, even that's got like a really cool intro sort of loops in before, um, before the melody starts. So it's, uh, it is one of my favorites, and it's definitely one of my favorites kind of to, to get back into a groove after spending you know half an hour sort of taking a break from the show. Yeah, no doubt about it. it. It gets you up and it gets you moving, and Jerry always sings it really well. It's got a lot of great energy to it, and it's fun to hear, and that's a great version too. I, I want to jump in quickly and correct myself. I think um, I said that the last uh, Dark Star had been in, in 78. Uh, there have obviously been a few in between there. I always think of like, you know, the, the closing of the Maryland is one of the last great ones, but uh, I think I think seven thirteen eighty four from the Greek was the last time they played Dark Star before that, and before that it had been on twelve thirty one eighty one, 
and before that was in 79. So there were no dark stars between 78 and uh, 89. There's you know, very, very few. But this is the first one since 84, well, the Hampton we were talking about. So this, is, this, this Miami night was the third time back, and it's the first time they started playing Dark Star consistently again. It wasn't a one-off with another 200-show break between now and the next one, which was made, you know, like, like when they played it again at Brendan Byrne, it was like, oh, wow, they did it again. When they played it in Miami, it was like, all right, Dark Star's back. And that's, I think, you know, one of the things that was really significant about this show. Absolutely. That's so funny you say that because anytime you heard the dead play a song that they hadn't played out of their repertoire, you had to hear it at least three times before you could say it was back, right? Because it could just be that one off and boom, it's all done. Um, but that's always nice when you, when, you've, when you come to the re realization that they intend to keep it around for a while. And, and that was great. On the uh, Grateful Dead news, um, I guess no surprise when you announce something's going to be your final tour in the Grateful Dead world, people get interested. They've sold out their entire summer tour. And apparently from what I've heard, they're contemplating adding some new dates. Um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, John Mayer's already out there, which by the way, we forgot to say happy birthday to John last week when we said happy birthday to Bob Weir. So quick shout out to John Mayer on your 45th birthday. Um, not an insignificant one for him either, but uh, he's already out there talking about sort of life after, you know, dead and co. So, you know, I'm not sure what drove this decision, whether it's, you know, health of uh, the older members or whether it's, you know, creativity and, you know, what I want to do next with a, a career for a younger player. But I'm, I'm getting the feeling that they're pretty serious about saying this is it. And, you know, maybe they pick up someone else that jumps in, you know, and plays guitar for a little bit. But, I mean, this is as dead and co's as close as we've seen since, you know, since 95 to a cohesive, long-term, out-in-the-road touring band that you know you knew who was in the band and what their you know what their repertoire was going to be and I, look when it was announced that they were going to do this in 2015 i never thought we were going to last till 2022 you know like i look back on it and go wow how, how lucky were we that we actually got seven years of this where it got people i mean like I, you know john mayer did his job man we talked about before he has introduced millions and millions and millions of new fans to grateful dead music and i think that grateful dead music now is as popular as ever and i think a lot of that is, is Due to what John has done, and if at this point everyone rides off in the sunset, being you know eighty years old or older, or you know darn close for you know some of these guys, what an accomplishment, man! I mean, like okay, Keith, Keith and Mick are still doing it. There's a handful of other guys out there who are still doing it, but not many, not many. Like me, Roger Waters is still touring, uh, you know. But even you know Paul Simon's basically hung it up, you know. Like all the other guys you think of, kind of from this era, you know, Dylan plays the, the occasional show, but that's that's about it. I think you're right. It's just, uh, you know, on the one hand, you know, we've certainly joked around about it a little bit, but it, it, but in, in, in seriousness, it really, they've been the keeper of the flame. They're the ones who have the big dead shows. They're the ones that draw the crowds. They're the one. Love Phil, by the way, we probably won't get to it today, but Phil's in the midst of his Philoween run out at the Capitol Theater. They just had the first, uh, just finished up the second weekend. And of course, as always, that's great. But you know, Phil's not selling out Wrigley Field and Dead & Co. is and uh, the other stadiums and, and larger venues along the way. And I think that if nothing else, people are going to come out because the thought has to be when again is there going to be another combined group that's going to have this kind of drawing power that it draws this kind of this crowd where in some of their earlier years, I think the first year or two, they were, they were really popular a couple of years. And then one year I saw them in the Rosemont horizon, the entire upper deck was shut down. They didn't even sell any of the tickets up there and the lower bowl wasn't filled, you know, but then through, I think, you know, through perseverance and everything else, they've really gotten to a point where 
people really like them and people really want to see them. And they've developed a following that, you know, views themselves as friends of Dead & Co. first because that's either been their exposure or the, their primary source of live dead music. So uh, I'm certainly planning to go see the shows when they come to Chicago and, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll pay my respects to all of them. And then I guess we just get to sit back and find out what comes next because we certainly know what's happened before. And I have to tell you, Rob, I don't know if you've had a chance to, to download or listen to any part of the, uh, the seven shows from Madison Square Garden that they released in, in their newest box set in and out of the garden, the 81, 82 and 83 shows there. What an amazing, what an amazing box set. All of those shows are great. I know I briefly mentioned last week the, the 83 show with St. Stephen, but I went back and listened to 81 and 82 this last week, and they're just at the top of their game. They love Madison Square Garden. Uh, such a great place to play. In fact, it's funny, when I was driving home last night, I heard our good buddy Rob Bleatstein playing 10-19-94, which is the last show they ever played in Madison Square Garden. And um, I think that the 81 show was the first show that they ever played there. So that's, that's quite a span for them. Uh, maybe it doesn't match up to Billy Joel and Fish, but uh, certainly uh, the Grateful Dead are right up there in, in bands that have graced uh, Madison Square Garden and kind of made it their home. And uh, one of these shows, we're going to have to spend a few minutes kind of really going through this in detail because it's such a good show. It's, it's such great artwork that they give you with it and everything, and uh, it's really a lot of fun. Yeah, absolutely. I have listened to some of it. And uh, the 94 show that the Bleed Scene just played, was that the one where they, uh, they closed the show with Rainy Day Women with, with Dylan? No. This was 10-19-94. No, the, uh, uh, the encore was broke down. But uh, the, the, the fun uh, second to the last song in the first set, Phil played If the Shoe Fits, um, which when I was listening to it, I didn't know what it was. And I had to go look it up on my uh, on my set list here. But check it. Listen to this second set from 10, 1994. Samson and Delilah. So many roads. Saint of Circumstance. Terrapin Station. Drum Space. Long Way to Go Home. Stella Blue. Sugar Mag. Broke Down Palace. That's a great way to go out of Madison Square Garden. Yeah, it's not bad. And uh, the show I was thinking it was two nights earlier. It was ten seventeen ninety four, which uh, which closed with, um, with with Dylan coming out and then playing Rainy Day Women, which, uh, which you know one of those ones where everyone's it wasn't played very well. But there's certain magic that happens in New York City that you know anyone that was there at the time would be like that was the greatest thing I ever saw. And then they listen to it you know five years later like yeah it doesn't really hold up. But the energy at the time was you know like holy shit Dylan's here and they're you know everyone's screaming everybody must get stoned. So it's the the garden is uh, one of those spots where like you you are always in for a treat if nothing else because I don't think I've ever seen a venue where the energy is that good every single time you walk in the door where like you've got a crowd that's just that amped up and I, I think that a lot of bands feel that way obviously like Billy Joel does Elton John does Fish does you know there's certain people that just like they feel the energy of the garden and they know the New York love but that place I don't know if it's the sound quality I don't know if it's just the fact you're in the middle of like Manhattan or whether it's just like, you know, the story reputation of like what that venue is. But there's something about that place that when you walk in and you go up the stairs and you kind of like, it's that echoing hallway of all the different staircases before you actually walk into the venue. It's, it's just nuts. And, uh, you know, so even 81, 82, 83, um, you know, I think until Elton John and Billy Joel and Fish, the dead were the other uh, band that had played there the most, like by a good clip, you know, with the five night runs and seven night runs and nine night runs. There was no one else I can think of that that put that many you know sort of back to back you know until until Fish did the Baker's Dozen. I don't think anyone had ever beaten the Dead's record of, of ten shows in 1988 of just you know 
taking over a residency for that long at MSG. Absolutely. And, you know, if, if we're going to talk about MSG and it's a live concert venue status, then, you know, if, I, if I'm willing to look beyond the Grateful Dead for favorite live albums, it's, it's very hard not to immediately focus on Get Your Yaya's Out. And that was always one of my favorite albums and still is. And yeah, this is the Rolling Stones album you're referring to. Uh, yes, exactly. And, and I apologize. I just, I should have said that. But yes, the Rolling Stones, Get Your Yaya's Out. And I guess the Rolling Stones can, you know, make any place exciting. Um, uh, but for those of you jam banders out there uh, who may not have ever heard it before, go into your parents' album collection and pull out Get Your Yaya's Out and spin that for a little while and, and listen to some rock and roll because those guys really know how to throw down. That's a, that's a great album. Um, and I'm, I have no doubt that uh, the, the surroundings played a role in it. The other uh, big music news uh, going on is the two nights from, uh, no, not two nights, four nights from now on Friday night, I get to go see Trey Anastasio band uh, at the Chicago Theater which is a big win for me, but I guess a little disappointing for Fish fans that there's not going to be the uh, traditional Halloween show with whatever musical costume they decide to pull out. To all of them, I say sorry, but I'm going to have a good time at the Chicago Theater, I think. Yeah, I mean, I think there's a lot of people that are disappointed there's no musical costume this year, but uh, but I've been listening to some of those tab shows um, well, they're in the West Coast. They just played Santa Barbara. They actually just played San Diego, uh, played Los Angeles, and... Um, They've been playing it on Fish Radio. Some of those shows have been sounding pretty darn good, so I think you're in for a treat. Uh, everyone sounds like they're playing well. The horn section's sounding great. And so I, I kind of love what Trey's doing right now, of going out there on the road with Tab and then immediately following that up with uh, with Tab and Goose and then following that up with you know, their four-night run at, at Madison Square Garden. So uh, you know, if you're a Trey fan, it's a, it's a really interesting fall, just a lot of musical collaborations. And, you know, the one trade-off is you don't get the, uh, the Vegas Fortnite run that we've been seeing for the last couple of years. So, you know, it's sad to, uh, to know that people are missing that one. But at the same time, you know, if you're more of a Trey fan than you are a Fish fan, then you're probably looking forward to, to everything that's happening this fall. Absolutely. And one other story I want to take note of, and a, a special shout-out uh, to our good buddy Rob Koritz and Dark Star Orchestra, uh, who just a couple of weeks from now are going to be uh, parking in Milwaukee for two nights to celebrate their 25th anniversary. And uh, hard to believe that the band that, that many will call like, you know, the original dead cover band and, and many still, you know, if you're willing to give J-Rad off to the side for a minute, you know, many still believe to be uh, the top one of the top Grateful Dead cover bands out there. And these guys have been playing for 25 years. That's amazing. Yeah, I'm such a big DSO fan and I'm such a big fan that those guys are still doing it. And I love the fact that members of the band have gone on to play with members of the Grateful Dead and, you know, sit in different lineups. And so it's kind of that, you know, great sort of, uh, you know, rock star moment of getting called up by your favorite band to, uh, to take the helm. But, uh, but they're also such laid-back guys, you know. I uh, had the opportunity to live, you know, as I said, right down the street from the rhythm, rhythm guitar player, the other Rob in the band, and such a super chill guy. And uh, their manager I had the opportunity to work with for a few years, who's the, uh, the person that used to put on the All Good Festival in West Virginia, a guy named Tim Walter, who uh, does all the booking for, you know, the 710 Club and uh, a few other, the 8x10 in Baltimore and uh, some spots in D.C. So, like, just that, that sort of that whole crew that's around DSO, it's just good people, big deadheads, uh, real community, and uh, much respect to how those guys have, uh, have built their career and built their following. So calling the original Grateful Dead cover band, though, Larry, I don't know. I mean, a bit of a stretch. I think the Zen Tricksters in New York City uh, had that title pretty well down. I don't think those guys were the first really well-known one. But, I mean, the Tricksters used to you know, sell pretty decent-sized crowds back in, like, 88, 89, 90. So they've been doing it for a long time, but definitely didn't have that same style that DSO went after of let's recreate a show in whole cloth 
And I think that's really what separated DSO out is, you know, we're going we're gonna to go after it and, you know, do it the same sound, the same tone, the same set list, and really try to recreate a show top to bottom. And just what a cool idea that was. I agree. And, and I and you're right. Uh, that was probably not the best way to describe it because the Zen Tricksters have been out there for a while. And there were other tons of other great cover bands in St. Louis. We had Jake's Leg in Chicago. There was Uncle John's Band. And people would flock to small bars to see these guys play. You know, because back in the 80s and 90s, we didn't have internet access. We couldn't just download Dead anytime we wanted to listen to it. And if you wanted live Dead, those those were the guys you had to go see. And so many of them delivered. And it's great to see that so many of them are still around and are still uh, are cranking out their tunes. And, you know, just one last thing before we go on to our uh, our closer here. But, you know, it's important to keep in mind that it, it's, it's while all of these bands are great and they are, it, it I think that what really makes all of us fans is is this fact that we have a love of music and more importantly a love of live music and a weekend or two ago i was i, I got really lucky and i uh, was up in minneapolis uh, my good buddies uh mike and dan and tony turned 60 and they rented out a theater up there and they had done the same thing when they turned 50 had a big crowd up there and they uh, had a band a local band called zeppo these were just five guys you know from the neighborhood who like to play and they whenever they have time and they can do it they play and i gotta tell you for a for a cover band that was just coming in to do that kind of stuff, I thought they really rocked the joint. They had a set list that was as diverse as uh, Daydream Believer, probably five or six David Bowie tunes, and Karma Chameleon. And, you know, you just don't get that diversity in songs from most bands. And these guys were just up there cranking away. And so, uh, you know, definitely shout out to them. Uh, some great, interesting people in the crowd. Met my good buddy uh, Tom there, and he's a good guy. I got to see my good friend Debbie. So it's just a lot of fun. Love being up in Minneapolis. Love hanging out with my boys up there and love listening to Zeppo. It's, uh, uh, you know, when you get a good local band, it's a good thing to have. Yeah, look, shout out to any band that's willing to cover Gary Wright. So uh, that's that's one you don't get too often. Uh Fantastic, man. Well, lots of fun stuff happening these days. Lots of fun stuff in the canvas industry. Lots of fun stuff in the music industry. Always fun to be on the show with you, uh, Larry, to, to do these every week. Um, got a lot of cool stuff coming up for us in the next few weeks. So um, Halloween's not far off and lots of things happening to cover in the cannabis world as well. Uh, we're going into kind of MJ Biz um, season of you know getting everyone out to Vegas. So uh, I'm excited for the next couple weeks. But from Southern California, this is Rob Hunt signing off for this week, and we'll see you all next week on the Dead of Canvas show. Thanks, Rob. Uh, we will actually we will uh, absolutely talk next week. We're we're going to go out on uh, probably the Dead's most famous closing tune or encore, depending on what time you were listening to them and where they were, whether they were doing encores at the moment or not. And I bid you good night is a tune that's out there. All deadheads know it. It's fun to sing along with. Uh, all the Jewish fans uh, have no problem uh, talking about Jesus as the Savior. It's just, it's, it's great music and it's a lot of fun. And, um, it, you know, it, what, I, what I never really knew about it was that it's, it was a funeral lowering tune, the song they would play when they were lowering the, the casket into the ground. Uh, and apparently it, 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 it originates out of a Christian hymn called The Christian's Good Night, uh, written by Iris Sankey and Sarah Dudney sometime in the late 19th century and leave it to the boys to take it and, uh, and break it out like that. But as we leave, I, anytime I hear, uh, and I bid you good night, it takes me back to the summer of 89 at Alpine Valley 
when the dead broke it out there the first night uh, for the first time in who knows how long. And I was there with a bunch of my buddies, including my good friend Larry, who, uh, Larry Vinoker, who's been on the show, and my good buddy Alex, who remains to be seen but does exist. And Alex loved it so much that he, he, just, he literally fell over in the parking lot from joy and happiness at hearing having heard them play. Uh, and we bid you good night. So it's a great tune. Uh, it's a great tune to go out on. As always, thanks to Rob. Thanks to Dan. Thanks to the librarian in Avon, Colorado for not kicking him out. And we'll see you all next week. Enjoy your cannabis responsibly. Well, eat all the children and would not be good. Bid you good night. Good night. I remember right well. I remember right well. Good night. Good night. Seven walking in Jerusalem just like George. Good night. Good night. Good night. Lay down, my dear brothers. Lay down and take your rest. I want you to lay your head upon your Savior's breast. I love you. But Jesus loves you the best And I bid you good night Good night Good night And I bid you good night Good night Good night And I bid you good night Good night Good night Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. Hey friends, I'm Brandon And I'm Saba. And we are your host of the Cannabis Hangout Podcast, an educational platform to connect with the cannabis community and share personal stories while breaking the stigma of marijuana. Join us every Sunday at 7 p.m. to gain valuable insight with different perspectives from industry leaders, growers, and medical marijuana patients. This is a place to learn so much from different angles in the cannabis industry. So tune in while, while we, we break, break it all down. down.